So we start a new series today uh, as we head through the book of Nehemiah. And during this series, we're going to follow the Israelites. We're going to follow them as, as they return to Jerusalem. We're going to follow them as they do the work of, of rebuilding the gates and the walls of the city. And as they renew their commitment uh, to God, as they once again acknowledge God's covenant and commit themselves to, to live out uh, their lives in, in ways that are honoring to God. And to, to set this up, set up the book of Nehemiah, I, I'd love for us to, to enter this book with a mindset of, of what perhaps was, was going on uh, at the time uh, that, uh, that the story was uh, written. And so, so let's think about this. It's, it's written to people who are discouraged, and it's written to, to people who are about people who are in this defenseless position. Years, years and years earlier, the Israelite parents and, and grandparents, their lives were flipped completely upside down. The, the Israelites, they had, they had turned away from God and, and were living uh, in their own ways. And what happened, what resulted is that the city of Jerusalem was a mess. The temple was destroyed. The uh, the walls were destroyed, the gates were destroyed, and, and all that was left of Jerusalem was this pile of rubble. And this oppressive government came in, and, and they decided how the people would live, where they would live, how they would live, and they took some of them into exile. Their life was entirely changed. You could say that things would not be the same way that they were before. And perhaps they started wondering. God had promised us land, and, and now we don't have any. Is, is that promise and blessing to us, is that slipping away? Does, does God still love us? Does God call us his treasured possession anymore? Or are God's promises ruins, just like the temple and city? Is God's promises no longer in effect with us? As, as years of exile passed, there was loss. Not only loss of their way of life that they had before, but loss of people. As the, the older ones among them, the oldest in the generations, begin to pass away, never to return to the land ever again. Generations passed away. But then came the time of, of the book of Ezra and 42,000 people returning to Jerusalem. But the reality of the situation, that was just just a few people from what there was before. And these, these few people were left to pick up the rubble of what was remaining. Pick up 
the pieces of the temple and, and rebuild it. And, and they did that, but that's kind of where they stopped. The Israelites were there. They had returned, but they didn't do anything with the raw walls. They still lied in ruins. The, the gates in ruins and toppled over, and, and they continued to live in this weakened position with no defense. I think this, this time period that we heard about, it's, it's not the only time that people have ever experienced life change within the world. It's, it's not the only time where people were left to pick up the pieces of what once was and, and rebuild something new. Perhaps you can think even in our own world history, how people had to pick up the pieces after World War I and World War II and how the Ukrainian people will one day need to pick up the pieces of what was once their life. We probably could all identify it with a little bit of, of life change when we think about the last two years or so, a little over two years, as, as this thing called COVID came and it upended the world. It adjusted the way that we were living. It forced us to live differently. It forced the church to, to pick up the pieces of what it once was and, and, and reform it into a new way. As we consider this starting over, we always can remember, though, it is, it is God who is always doing a new thing. He is always working his way of renewal, not only in our hearts, but also within creation and the world. In Isaiah 43, we hear that God is always doing a new thing, springing things to life. So let us join us uh, with the Israelites on this, this journey as we head to Nehemiah chapter 1. And those black Bibles, it'll be page 383. Uh, and the student Bibles, if you have those, it'll be page 564. So let us head there uh, together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They had said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, 
the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and laws that you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in the revering of your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. It ends by saying, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah begins essentially where the book of Ezra ended. The people of Israel had returned more than a decade earlier, and they had built the temple, and they recommitted their lives to God. But in the matter of those 10 years, they had once again began living in their own way. They had once again not been been following what God had, had put forward as the path to life. And after 10 long years, Nehemiah hears that the gates are still in ruins and that the walls are still rubble. That the people are in great trouble and disgrace. The process of renewal that God had set forth for his people for for some reason had stopped and they're in this, this troubling position. They're in this weak position. Part of me wonders if the people that were in Jerusalem actually felt like they were in a weak position. I wonder if they actually noticed that the the walls and gates had been burned down and still remained in rubble. Sometimes we we go through life, and, and some of those aspects of trouble, some of those aspects that that uh, that we see as difficulty, just somehow seem to to blend into the landscape. It's like. Uh, the piece of trim at the parsonage that I said that I was going to take care of putting in after uh, the flooring was done, and all it's doing is sitting there right where it should be, but it's not nailed up. It just blends into the landscape, something that isn't noticed anymore and isn't really worried about. The walls that were sitting in rubble just became part of the scenery to the people. But they weren't part of the scenery to Nehemiah. Nehemiah heard of these crumbled walls and these burned down gates. And and notice what he does in verse 4. 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. You know, he, he didn't try to set forth this five-step plan to, to get the walls back and built, to get the gates up. He, he, he didn't immediately go to write a letter to send back to the people to encourage them to, to get on their work boots and get to work. He, he didn't begin by himself going there and, and working on his own, working to the death to get these walls built. No, instead he, he begins with mourning and weeping. He begins in a, a place of fasting and praying before God. In the, in the prayer he begins... He, he desires that God's ears would be attentive to his cry, but the other thing that he does is that he confesses the sins that we, the Israelites, have done. He, he prays a prayer that recognizes that the exiles have returned and they're still God's people, but yet that there's sin. He remembers why they were put into exile in the first place, the reason the temple came down and the walls were broken and the gates were burned, that they had, had followed their own way. And so Nehemiah, he, he confesses this communal sin of all of the Israelites, those have, who have gone before and those who have, have passed away already. We don't really know what communal sin that he's referencing is. He doesn't get specific in, in the written prayer that we have in the book of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah wants us to take seriously and wants the Israelites to take seriously the, the communal sin, the way that the people of God are, are sinning within the world. And there's, there's one other thing that I notice in that passage, if we go back to that including myself and my father's family. Nehemiah identifies not only the communal sin, but also his own participation and his father's own participation in, in the same sin that keeps them from God. He takes seriously not only the communal sin, but he takes seriously the, the sin that he himself has done, the ways that, that the Israelites and himself have fallen short of the glory of God. It's because of this damaging sin, Nehemiah knows, that, that that's why the walls were torn down. That's why the, the gates were smashed. That's why the temple uh, was torn down. Perhaps, too, that's why they, they haven't been rebuilt yet, because of the communal sin that is continuing to be a part of the people's life. I wonder, how often is it that we recognize the communal sin among us, whether it's, it's the church or, or whether it's uh, the country that we live in? You know, I think we do it every week here, just as Steve led us in earlier today as we have confessed that we sin in, in thought, in word, and in deed. As we go 
each week confessing a different area of brokenness in our world and in the way that we live a me-first life. But I wonder when we do recognize communal sin, the, the communal sin that we say before, that happened before, would, would, we, would we make excuses? When we confess the, the sin of, of what happened to the native people of America as the pilgrims came over and as the government oppressed and, and confined the native people, as we, we confess the sin of, of, of racism and slavery that happened and the disregard for human life that arrived from Africa on boats, do we somehow come up with excuses? Well, you know, they didn't know any better. Do we ourselves identify with those communal sins just as Nehemiah was identifying with the communal sin by saying it was himself and his father's household that have sinned against God? What Nehemiah asks us to do is to, to recognize our involvement in communal sin that has happened in the past. Because for Nehemiah, he was an Israelite, so there was no way for him to remove himself from the sin of the Israelites. If he identifies as an Israelite, then the Israelite's sin is his own. I think in the same way, if, if we identify as American or we identify as Canadian, Steve, uh, we cannot separate ourselves, we can't separate ourselves from that because we are an American or we are a Canadian. In the, in the same way, if we identify ourselves as a, a follower of Christ, then therefore we identify too with the church. If we identify with our, our country and we identify with the church, then we cannot separate ourselves from the communal sin that has happened in the past. We're asked here and, and we see how we should identify with and, and confess the sin and past failing of not only our country, but also our church. I have a, a quote from uh, Chris Rogers in his book, Restore, Renew, Rebuild, I think is the title. He says, in, in the past few years, the church has started to recognize the pain and hurt caused by long-term systemic racism going back generations. And there seems to be two very distinct camps regarding this at present. We either A, grieve that we are still in this place and know that things must change radically, or we actively stubbornly, and intentionally refuse to acknowledge it. And he continues, in the church there's absolutely, absolutely unequivocally no place whatsoever for racism because we are one body and we are one people in Christ. 
there was a group in our church that went through the book Color of Compromise. Uh, it was written by this Jamar Tisby, and, and what Tisby does is he, he goes through and, and shows how the church that we identify with, the, the followers of Christ that have gone before us were complicit in racism that happened in the past. He shares stories like these that the Baptist General Committee of Virginia issued statements in 1785 and 1790 opposing slavery, but due to pressures from people in their own congregation, the General Committee took back those statements in, 19, or in 1793 walking back and saying it was a, a matter of civil legislature and that the church shouldn't have to say anything about it. Or we could think more recently when, when white congregations participated in the thing called white flight, where they moved their, not only their homes from the city, but also their churches from the city and moving them out into the suburbs. We can confess that sin, the sin of the global church, all the people who identify as Christ and our participation within that. We can confess sin too in other ways when we've perhaps been more concerned about song choices than who is missing and not here every week. Because they're not here because they don't know the gospel and yet we're worried about the order of service. Or, or maybe we can confess that oftentimes we're heartbroken over something that was lost or some way that something once was in church, but we remain completely unbothered by the poverty and injustice that surrounds our world. Maybe we too need to take Nehemiah's example, to, to take time to, to get down on our knees and, and weep and mourn. Perhaps we need to get down on our knees and fast and, and pray instead of looking for ways to, to win arguments and prove ourselves right. Maybe instead we begin with prayer and listening. But when we, when we get down on our knees, when we, when we fast and pray, when we confess the sin, we we're, we're not left to, to wallow in that sin. We're, we're, we're not to, to just think, oh, I'm so terrible and worthless. I, I, I can't do anything right. Because God wants us to be propelled towards his grace. He desires that we be, be propelled, that the law would, would show us and force us to Christ and to experience his grace more fully. For Nehemiah, he, he talked about that grace in his prayer. After he had 
had shared that if they had not followed God's ways, that he would that God would scatter his people among the nations, the grace came that if they return to God and obey him, that even if the exiled people are in the, the farthest horizon of the earth, even if they're so far away, that God will, will work by gathering all his people together into the dwelling that he has prepared for them, the dwelling that is in his name. The people of Israel were not known for that sin that they committed, the communal sin and in the individual sin, but they were known and continued to be known as God's treasured possession in the world. People that he chose for a specific purpose to be a light to the nations. That by following God's way by following his way that that they would be this city on a hill to show a new way of living that opposes all the other ways that the nations were living in the world. And that's what God desires for us too. That we would experience his grace that we would experience his mercy even even with the, the communal sin that has happened in the past or the individual sin that we consistently remember, those ways that we have failed. We, we remember that it was Christ that took the, the rubble of our sin in our hearts. As, as Christ was hung on the cross, that he, he took the rubble that was the sin in our hearts and he rebuilt it into something new. Just as, as the Israelites came back and rebuilt the temple, Jesus rebuilt the temple within our lives taking the rubble of sin and making it into a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. That, that we would not only be able to experience and remember God's love and his grace towards us in spite of our sin, but that we would actually be dwellings and temples of the Holy Spirit. And that by the Spirit living in us, we would become more aware of those areas of communal sin, of those areas where we're falling short, and that we can identify that in our lives and turn. As we identify sin, one of, one of, the, re, one of the things that we do when we confess it, we, we literally turn the other way and, and we leave that behind, living in new ways, changing behavioral practices in our life, changing the words that we say, to have them be more honoring to God, changing the way we live, that each day would be an act of worship to the Lord by the way that we live. And we do that. We live that way just as the Israelites did until God will, will come and, and gather us all from the far reaches of the world 
Revelation gives this beautiful picture of all of the nations bringing their gifts to God. All of the nations bringing what is important to them, what God has gifted them with, bringing them to God. And and we will join this, this chorus of people from around the world in God's kingdom as he continues his renewal and finally brings it to fruition. A kingdom where what Nehemiah did, his mourning and weeping, that won't ever have to happen again. A kingdom where there is no mourning, where there is no weeping, a kingdom where there there is no sickness. A kingdom where, like Garrett prayed this morning, we, we wouldn't have to continually pray for the healing of people because it was Christ who, who worked within us, rebuilding our hearts and restoring us and renewing us to be image bearers of himself. That one day we would receive the heavenly body, the heavenly body that is awaiting for us in the renewed kingdom. No more racism. No more communal sin. No more individual sin. Just the glory, the awe, the majesty of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you continually work new things among us. That in in your book, there really isn't the phrase, this is the way things always are. Because you're always working and renewing, bringing a new thing here in this world. And our prayer, Lord, is that you use us. Use the the leaders that we ordained this morning, installed into positions. Use each and every one of us as your servants, bringing about renewal and restoration in all of our neighborhoods, in all the, the places of life where we go, that your name would be honored and praised, and that your love would be shared with all people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.